Hello and welcome to Start the Beat with Sykes. I am Sykes and this is my podcast. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who checked out last week's episode with Bad Custer. If you are one of those people, I hope you enjoyed the conversation and thanks so much for coming back. But for those of you out there who are new to the show, Welcome. Please feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there's beer and soda in the fridge. Now today on the show, we got Byron Nash. And I am really, really stoked on this. Uh, For those of you out there who don't know Byron, he is a musician, a writer, promoter, hustler. He's, He's just a hustler, a grinder. He's been doing this shit for a really, really long time, and it shows. He's really, really good, has a lot of really cool stories to tell, and that's what you're about to hear. You're about to hear all about Byron's come up, how he grew up, how he got into music, the different bands he was playing in, places he worked, people he met, life experiences. This guy has a lot of them, and you're going to enjoy listening to him, because I enjoyed listening to him. I met Byron through my friend Evan, friend and bandmate Evan, who is in Greywalker. Evan also has been making music with Byron for a number of years now, and uh, I'm just bringing this up because they are actually going to be playing a show. Byron Nash and Plan B are going to be down at Kaya Fest in the Strip District on Sunday, May 29th. They're playing like 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. The shit is free, and I'm going to go. You going to go? Go! But first, if you are new to me and new to the show in general, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at The Real Sykes. The podcast has its own little Facebook page, which you can find. If you just go to Facebook, the search bar, type in Start the Beat with Sykes. If you're someone who likes your podcasts in a little podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, something like that, you can find me. I'm there. Just type in Start the Beat. Subscribe. Rate, review the show. Last but certainly not least, Start the Beat is part of the Epicast family which you can learn all about at epicast.tv. All right, that was a lot of information, but I think we're ready now for my conversation with the one and only Byron Nash. Sit back, relax, and let's start the motherfucking beat! Yep. 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 That's right. Yep. Cool. Look, it's doing stuff. All right. Good to go. <laughs> cool. So, never done this before. No, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. We were, before we started rolling, we were talking about two artists. Yeah. Bjork and Slipknot. Mm-hmm. 
which is a very good uh, diagram, I would imagine, of <laughs> yeah. the type of music that you're into. You're into a wide variety of stuff. True. And the music that I know you to make sounds really nothing like Bjork nor Slipknot. Yeah. So there's like a whole nother facet of what you're into. Yeah. And just for the general person who doesn't know like you too much, where did like, what was the first thing that as a kid that was like, holy shit, music rules. Was uh, there one thing in particular? I think it started with uh, probably George Clinton. Okay. Like the most vivid, like five-year-old memory would be, Parliament Funkadelic, the album where it's coming out of the spaceship and looks all kind of crazy. Um, Which one? Mothership Connection? Yeah, that yeah. one. I was kind of scared of it, but I was fascinated <laughs> at the same time. And my mom had a really nice collection. And I remember just it, that was my thing. I would lay on the floor. She let me put the records on and I would just stay with it through the whole listening experience. Young. And I remember spilling orange juice on the insert. And the fear and the the fear and the disappointment that I had for like damaging it oh, yeah. was intense. It's the same as it would be right now Yo. if I messed up a case, My. a guitar case or you know, a guitar. Like it's the same thing. It's always been the same feeling. So the respect was there very early. And then it was just like weird stuff because my mom didn't have a limit on what we listened to. She just she had a vast collection. So I got to hear a lot of things that you probably wouldn't hear in the household. Um especially in the African-American household back in the 70s. Sure. You know, but I think that's the one that stands out where I'm like hooked on vinyl, hooked on music, and it just went from there. It's so funny. You know, it's the same fucking way with me. My dad collected a bunch of records, and I remember uh, he had a copy of Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, mm. and I scratched it when I was a kid trying to listen to it because I really, really liked Iron Maiden as yeah. a kid and he wasn't home and I just wanted to listen to the record. So yep. I tried to put it on myself and just completely messed it up. Yeah, because there's an art to putting a, a, the needle on yeah. the record. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't understand that as no, a kid. you got to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, me growing up, my uncle was the main one who listened to a ton of different music and exposed me to a lot of stuff at yeah. a very, very young age. So it's always never been one thing no. with me. You know, there was never like a a cultural barrier. Like, so, so we just played with Living Color, and I put a picture up online that was us on stage, like tuning. But they had more pedals than I'd ever seen <laughs> in my life. You know, yeah. And I tweeted it, and then Doug Wimbish uh, from Living Color liked it, and I was just like sitting in rehearsal, like, uh. Doug Wimbish just liked my tweet. Like, Geeking a out a little door. bit? Yeah, but and they were like, oh, well, what else was, you know, what else did he play on? I'm like, uh, Sugar Hill Gang. And then I was like, that was one of my first. He was like, which baseline? I was like, hip, hop. You know what I mean? Like the early, early oh, stuff. Oh, really? That yeah. was him, yeah. Yeah, and he's been around that long, you know, and just thinking about how impactful all that stuff was and how I had the little, like, light-up record player. But then how it was, like, weird things, like Barry Manilow and – uh who did uh, Rhinestone Cowboy? Who was that? I have no idea. Like, just some, any, anything that was popular in the yeah. 70s. Lou Rawls. Like, all that stuff had impact because it was on the radio. And radio was really how you heard your music unless you bought records, you know? And I'm, I'm so grateful for that because it, it really made me – I think you go through, like, periods, especially as a teen, where you're like, I'm, this is my shit. This is what I love. But then you start to grow or you get bored and, you, you know – but I never 
let go of the things that I love. Sometimes people be like, oh, man, I love metal in high school, but I don't really listen to it anymore, and I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yo, I was rocking Cinderella. Like, I heard it at the gym today. I was like, I fucking love this song. <laughs> and I'm not letting go of something that I used to enjoy. I may not listen to it every day anymore, but it's still a part of my whole journey, you know? And But those formative years, I was, I mean, I, they're very clear to me still, you know? Definitely. So. Whenever, when did you start playing I didn't technically, like, back in the day when music was a part of school, like, I tried tuba, and then I tried sax. Yeah, I did trumpet, I tried, you know, did trumpet, violin. Yeah, like, I was just kind of go through, you know, trying to figure out what you like or what you can play. Um, and then I got a snare drum, and that was sort of what started it. But I, I would never say I was a drummer first, but that was the direction. I didn't get a guitar until I was about 15 years old. Oh, wow. I used to go to the mall. I think it was Sam Goody. I lived in Baltimore and just drool over this like Hondo black and white strat, like copycat cheapy, you know, it reminds me of like Wayne's world or something. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> and, but I, I, I don't even remember saying, Hey mom, I want a guitar or anything like that. I just listened to guitar oriented music. Um, and I was getting deeper into it. And then one Christmas she bought me a guitar and that was the beginning, but I didn't even get serious about playing until, probably early 20s oh really yeah like i was a skater so skating was like the number one thing music accompanied all that but as far as actually you know it's like i owned a guitar but i didn't necessarily i wasn't a player yet i wouldn't tell people i played because i just i wasn't good you know what i mean Uh, i always had instruments around but just didn't quite have it there but always wanted to and then like what kicked it in did like a, um, some friends want to start a band or something, or did you just get the itch to start something? I was, I was around some people in my like later teens who were like really good, so I was I loved being around it, but I didn't have like the chops. But they didn't make me feel uh, inadequate. What know? kind of stuff were they doing? Uh, like one guy was in marching band and playing like in Rush cover bands and <laughs> things like that. And then I had this friend named Eric Turner who was like the ultimate like shredder. He was like the guy that you would hear about and you'd be sort of like you'd be praising him and annoyed at the same time because he was just so naturally freaking good. Like, sure. He was good at bass. He was good at drums. He was good at, you know, he, he could play like Rain and Blood, top to bottom by ear. Like he was that guy. And we were just like, I don't really like you that much. <laughs> <laughs> like I was straight envy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But that was my dude. And, and we, we would always discover music together. And we were the ones. Me, uh, he, and uh, another friend, we sort of got on this quest to find the new shit. You know, he'd be like, "You ever hear of this group Primus?" It'd be like 1989. I'm like, "No." And then we'd listen to it, like, "What the hell's going on?" And then we'd be going for this other thing, and we'd go to this show and, and that show. Once I was like, started playing a little bit more. I think really what kicked it in was um, I became a single parent. Okay. And my grandmother got me an acoustic around the time my son was born. And sort of to cope with being a single dad and like that kind of the little bit of peace of mind that I would have away from being a dad, I just started playing a lot more because it was like comfort. Um, And then I I started with an electric, didn't play it, and then it broke type of thing. Got the acoustic and started to really learn guitar on acoustic first. But I was in a super deep metal realm of life, you know, so I was like I was learning guitar on acoustic while listening to all electric heavy stuff okay so my approach was metal but i was approaching it on an acoustic guitar which completely flipped how i learned you know so it wasn't until like mid 90s i got like my first like real 600 dollars ibanez and 
plugged it into a little amp, and then I started like rehearsing by myself six, seven hours a day. And I, and I made a decision that it was going to be a part of my life, whether I was in a band or not. I didn't even have a band yet. Um, and that was it. Every Father's Day, I would buy myself a new instrument and just started collecting and growing, getting deeper and crazier about it. And then I didn't get my first band until like 1997. That's awesome. Yeah. It was do like I was a late bloomer, you know. Do you still do that on Father's Day? Buy yourself instruments? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it could be like anything. Anything. It doesn't have to be a guitar. But so Is that the only time of the year you buy yourself an instrument? No. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. It's just sort of it, before, you know, it used to be more of a celebration that we made it a year together. Uh, totally. Figure I, I had my son very young and it made it where we were growing up together, you know. It's like, ah, oh, made it another year, you're three. Let's get some bongos, you know? And then I would teach myself how to play bongos. And then that would open me up into another realm because I feel like sometimes a guitar player will be like, I want to be a really good guitar player and totally forget about being a good musician, you know? And, I, and there's a difference. And that's a, that becomes a problem with guitar players and bands and writing songs. Because mm -hmm. if they're not acclimated to other instruments, they're only thinking about themselves. Yeah. And it's like, dog. Yeah. We got to get some other stuff in this song to make yeah. a full picture. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and the other thing that it opened me up to was that um, my listening style of, you know, listening to so much metal uh, for a long time, uh, metal always, at least the stuff that I was really into and, and really into, is always playing. So it, there's not a lot of space in the regard that, you know, you have a riff that's just like hits a beat and you kind of wait and let the music breathe. It's, it's not really designed for that. It's designed to be moving full throttle all the time, you know? And through the other styles of music or through playing bongos or being at, like, jam band festivals, I learned patience in the application of when to say something as compared to having to say something all the time. And that didn't really come from guitar. It came from picking up a harmonica, buying... Like, one time I bought myself a metronome, the old-school clicky things. Oh, nice. Thought I had great timing because I can memorize, like, the most <laughs> complex metal track. And then I tried playing along a B.B. King song and couldn't stay in beat, couldn't figure out where the note was. Like, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing with music. And that's what made me say, you need to just start learning everything. And that's where Bjork came into place. Um, I spent a couple years where I was focused on strictly, like, female vocalists, you know, because I'm like, I couldn't solo. So I'm like, well... If you, I read somewhere, if you approach solos like a horn player, then every time they take a breath is where you should take a rest, right? But in metal, you know, a thousand miles yeah. an hour. So I wanted to be more expressive about how I would say something in a solo, like a Prince solo, really expressive. He has the chops, but you don't have to always have the chops to. That's what I'm, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I would play along with like a Tori Amos CD and like, figure out like what she's you know her her notes and everything and then just try to mimic it not necessarily like bite it and steal it but just to learn it so it would it break me out of my old habits because you kind of get stuck in this like da, 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 you know yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i think <laughs> that's know? the thing people think that a solo doesn't necessarily it doesn't have to be like show off time yes it's like there, there's yeah. still a song here yeah and what's gonna like kick that song up a notch exactly rather and, than being like Mm -hmm. Look at me. Exactly. And, and I wanted to, to delve into that a little bit more. So a lot of that came from listening to, uh, when, once I got into jazz a lot more, that was a big um, impression on that. But really, it was the beginning stuff with, I got deep into Bjork, deep into Tori Amos, 
and deep into a 10,000 Maniacs. Like I bought every 10,000 Maniac record. I knew every lyric because I wasn't listening to music like that. You know, so it was such a break from everything else that it sort of opened me up to like just I was I was game for anything. Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I love whenever you tap into a new genre of music. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really happen so much anymore yeah. for me because I've kind of been around the block, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But back in the day when, you know, the first time you hear something like Bjork yeah. or some weird like electronic music like mm-hmm. like when prodigy came out i was like yeah. whoa I love this discovery. is insane yeah I, I love uh being reminded that there's always another way to approach it you know no matter how many notes are available and what how many beats there are and all that stuff you know the application and the the emotion started to become much more important than uh my chops totally you know? N- not yeah. that i would neglect that because that's also super important to me I believe in like the discipline of sitting there and practicing. You know, you have practice with your band, but you need that alone time to kind of work on your craft to get deeper into where you're coming from as a musician to be able to even give, you know what I mean, to the project or to the song to bring more to it. And I think for me, for where I'm trying to get with it, that alone time with the instrument is so key. And I, I don't think I can say the things I'm trying to say without having the technicality to be able to do it. But you don't have to always whip out the technique to be able to say it. It's nice to have it in the arsenal, though. Oh, yeah, <laughs> It's definitely. nice to have it as the fallback and know that... Because it, because when it happens, it's like, it, really it means happens. so much more. Yeah, you know. But um, a lot of it, man, I got into a, a very less is more phase. You know, I... I, I um, What was it? About 97... I got an internship at this old uh, magazine in McKee's Rocks called Rock and Roll Reporter. And I got it for graphic design, but it was right on the cusp. I was graduating school, so it was right on the cusp when um, fine arts was turning into graphics. So, like, I got out of school and sort of was, like, really creative, yeah. but, I like, my computer game wasn't nice, you know, yeah. because it wasn't the main, main way of going about it. Um, but once I got the, the internship... Oddly enough, I was writing CD reviews for fun before it. And all of a sudden I ended up at you know, I ended up at this place where I was already reading their magazines and stuff. And one site they were like, Oh, you can write a little bit, and then I like worked on my writing. I went way like away from the art part and deep into the writing and like became local music editor. So I was like going to shows, meeting bands, and uh then over time, like managing editor. So I was like interviewing nationals. I had CDs sent to me from record labels like every week, like, oh, trying to push their new band. And well, if you review this band, we'll give you the big band. It's like, oh, I really want to talk to Rob Zombie, but I got to listen to these three CDs and hope I get it, you know? Yeah. And that taught me the business. And that also made me listen to things that I never would have listened to ever, you know? And, and it blew it out the, it kind of blew the walls out on everything. So, because we would get free concert tickets, and then you would go to the show, and you take the photo. You get the first three songs, and I started to really understand lighting and timing with that because in those first three songs, they give you the shittiest lighting because they technically don't want you to have that great of a photo, you know? And Because if you ever notice, like, after it's all said and done, that fourth song, boom, is bright as hell. Well, the photographers are out of the pit. They're gone now, you know? So... There was a timing with music that I started to learn through photography and like got into like video stuff and just sort of getting a, a feel for everything else uh, from being an artist. But the biggest thing was my boss would be like, I want you to review these. 
and I would put it on. I wouldn't even know what to say. So I'd have to listen. And like sometimes it was like a forced listen. Like I don't really want to listen to shit right now. I'll just listen to music all day. But it taught me how to like say, well, I may not be, be into this Justin Bieber song, but why is this song huge? You know, yeah. how, how do you disconnect from your feeling or your personal like dislike for something and still be able to say, no, this is a good song because here's the elements that make this song a hit. What is it? It doesn't have to be anything you're into. But once I started to understand that, I, I was able to enjoy so much more music, you know, and then, I, then all of a sudden I'm like at a Spice Girls concert. Do I sit around and listen to Spice Girls? No. Did I learn a lot about marketing and like sales and why there were, you know, limos filled in the parking lot and like there'd be commercial breaks and then the parents would run to the booth and spend thousands of dollars for their kids and then go back? Yes. I wouldn't have learned that if I weren't there, you know, so I, I started taking a little bits of all these things and sort of incorporating it into how I would approach being an artist overall, not just a guitar player, you know, so a lot of it came from my rock mode reporter experience. And then it was just like trial and error, <laughs> you yeah. know, trial by fire, you know. So that whole thing kind of, I guess, went wayside with like the digital age in a way. Like, yeah, yeah, because like print media. Yeah, you know, it. We were we were hanging in there, but at the time there was in Pittsburgh, and then we had City Paper, and then there were us. We were sort of the three, but they were the two biggies. You know? City we, Paper's music section is great. Yeah, and hard we, but, sarcasm. But we were yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we were like we were sort of the underdog. You know, we were like the poor magazine and McKee's Rocks that that people the musicians took seriously, but I don't think the in the industry, the national industry took us real serious. We were getting interviews that they couldn't get. Sure. Like, you know, but what they didn't have that we had, and that's why this is why I'm so grateful I was a part of it. They didn't have the heart for the music. Yeah. The same way. They didn't like I would geek out over some shit, like, oh my God, we have to write about this. You know, and it was at a time where it was still kind of like a rock magazine, you know, like, uh, you guys we're gonna have to start putting some other stuff in there. You know, and because it was dying in a way because it was stale, you know, like Pittsburgh was sort of behind the times as compared to what we were getting uh, knowledge of. And, oh, okay. sent, yeah. you know, like someone would be like, oh, it's been out for six months. And you're like, oh, here's that new shit. And you're like, mm, that's not really that new, you know. So we had a, a leg up on that only after we started to get more diverse, you know. And one of the first things we did was like I interviewed uh, – I think it was Raw Digga from Flip Mode Squad, you know, because Busta was like huge, you know. And and my boss was like, what do you think about putting them on the cover? I'm like, I think everyone's going to be pissed. I was like, but we have to do it or we're going to die, you know. And we did it and there was a, a shitstorm of, you know, the metal community is mad. The rock bands locally were mad and some of the, the advertisers were mad because we had this like crazy looking hip hop group on the cover. But it was the risk that we needed to take, just like you do in music, just like you do in art, just like you do in business, to try to grow and, and be more vast and be more connected to it. So it went for a while, but then it just got to the point where we couldn't compete from an advertising. It was simply off of advertising. It was very hard to compete when you're that small, you know, and you're up against other people's money. Their money's getting crushed and smaller, yeah. and they can't afford to, like, spread it out so they have to you know and then the internet's no one really had a grasp on what to do with the internet so everything's kind of like floating out there like oh do we go to the left we go to the right and then we had to close but i mean i had five strong years there and then three years off of that i just wrote independently so i wrote for city paper and i would 
you know, interview bands and still still had the same access. And then I'm like, I need to focus more on music because I just didn't want to talk about it wasn't that I didn't want to talk about other people's stuff. I just wanted to focus more on trying to make my music better. And yeah. I, and I was spread thin. Like you can't be this, that, this, this, that, and the other and maybe get the goal that you're trying to get. Because mm-hmm. and, and this is That's you get it because yeah. you're a guy that does a lot of things. I'm a guy that does a lot of things. But there's there comes a point where it's like, all right, which one am I going to give the most energy to so I can give it its all? Oh, yeah. You know, it's you know? that. You only have 100% of yourself as a person to give. And each new thing you add, you're dividing up that 100% that you have. So I let the writing fall by the wayside, but I I don't feel bad about it because there was so much that I'm still getting out of it now. Like I wrote all the bios from the bands that I did. (laughs) I used to write bios for bands and do press kits for them. So there was a skill set that I developed through that. And, you know, taking photos and doing layouts by hand. Like we literally would lay the magazine out and paste, build it, you know. Yeah. Doing that for a while, you really get a keen sense of like what an article should look like, what a photo should look like. You know, I, I my eye got better in editing when I started doing music videos more. And I'm like, because uh, I learned some of my guitar stuff from watching music videos. And in a lot of videos back in the day, the editing would be pretty poor. So they'd show you the same clip. Like if you look at uh, Bon Jovi's One a Dead or Alive, there's two clips of the same guitar part. But I like would freeze frame it on VHS and be like, okay. <laughs> right? And I would like put my finger on the chord and I'd play the chord. And I'm like, that's not what he's playing right there. So it like sharpened my eye to like catch things in videos. And it all lent itself to one another. You know what I mean? So I'm grateful for that and just trying to dial it all in as an artist overall, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm spread thin. <laughs> <laughs> spread thin as hell, but I feel you. It's so, okay. Like, it's part of it. You know? Right now, what is everything that you're doing? You know, like what, what, what's, what's spreading you thin right now, today um, in 2016? I mean, I work a lot. You know, I'm a bartender, so my hours are, they're not great. They're not like regular hours. You know, they're not nine to five, but in a, in a way, that makes sense for what I do because the service industry, is sort of like the bastard cousin of the music industry. It's like sex, drugs, money, ego, weird hours, right? And booze. Yeah. It's it's kind of what it's built on, you know? And service, you're servicing the public. So through it, I get to meet a lot of people. Um, I can promote through it. You, you, it kind of socially puts me in a different realm. Oh, yeah. As compared it's a to very like, social job. Yeah, it's a social job. So I can develop that skill that works for music. But... Sometimes, you know, when you're doing that all the time, you have to get up early to do the business side of being a musician and being an artist and, you know, meeting with my video guy to talk about what we're trying to do in two months. And, oh, I got this thing that's coming up next Monday, you know, and can you make that and, and sort of being scheduled on what I'd like to call regular hours and, and, and trying to keep that up. And then like your personal life of, uh, you know, I try to exercise because I need the energy to keep up with the demand of the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> um, but right now, the main thing is um, I have a band called Byron Ash and Plan B, and we're playing a bunch of shows and writing a lot, and we get together weekly and produce music. And, you know, I'm producing music and writing things solo from that, and that either will become a song or maybe not, but it's just I'm just trying to crank out music. Um and then I reunited with my um, my old band, Sporadic, not to like reform or have like a, hey, we're back thing. It was simply someone said, hey, can you play a show? And I was like, yeah. And 
plan B. I didn't want us to do it because it was going to be too close to another show. And I thought it would be like oversaturation. So I was like, oh, I'll play it solo. And then it's like, oh, well, I can play it. I was like, oh, well, shit, we could build and sporadic, you know? And then it, it, it just, just happened. Yeah. So that's more of a low pressure. Um, we're not trying to book a bunch of gigs type of thing. It's more like that was my first band. And with that band, what was so special is that none of us knew what we were doing. So everything was flying by the seat of our pants, and it was sort of sporadic. So, it was sort of sporadic, <laughs> and it was very fearless. Um, we would we would try things that we almost musically weren't capable of doing on stage until we got it. And our rehearsals, to this day, were like six, seven hours long, and they were focused. Like we would play and just hash things out, and we got so tight as a three piece that that sort of set me up for the discipline of how I felt like rehearsals should go, so you can get the most out of it especially as you get older and like people don't have as much time. All right, cool. Let's go in there know what it is. Get to work, bang it out. Now I can record it and I can, you know, drop box it for everybody. So we don't have to be mm-hmm. together three times a week. Like we were before. I really like that element. So, um, because I've gotten deeper into production, I'm able to record all the sessions, do a mix, send it to everyone. Everyone does their homework. You come back to That's rehearsal great. again, you're on point. It's like, you don't want to be the one who doesn't know the part, you know? <laughs> so that's another element. And trying to get better at recording, you know, it, I sort of stumbled onto it because before I didn't have any digital stuff and we were just memorizing everything, which was great, but it was hard, you know? So I'm like, so much music must have gotten lost, like in a jam or something. I because, believe it, yeah. You know, but the things we retained, it created like a strength in, um, in memorization. You know, like you were really accountable for like, okay, that's, what was that in seven? And then really nailing the part and then having to come back in three days and like, hope you still had it like in your brain somewhere, you know? Um, So I think that's about it right now. It's just really trying to make all that move at the same time with the momentum that makes sense. Yeah. I'm not trying to do so much that I'm trying to overaccomplish things that aren't like logical but at the same time i'm not resting on my laurels and i'm not waiting for anything to happen i'm like kind of going after it so if there's an interview that can happen cool i'll, I'll fit it in if <laughs> yeah. somebody wants me to come play it you know in the studio cool let's do it you know as long as i have the the energy and the focus to do it i want to stay on it so mm-hmm. yeah it's important to just go for it yeah i take, like waking up opportunities with a purpose, yeah you know um so when I say I have a lot going on, it's not that I have like a thousand things going on, but for the if I say I have five, they're all kind of full throttle and they all require. Well, here's a, a question: lot, you know? Do you remember the last time you were bored? No, <laughs> no, it's funny. I I really don't. I, yeah, I think I, it yeah. was in the nineties. Like it was in the nineties. Like I remember having time to sit around, and that doesn't exist. And it's to the point now. Like my to do list on average is eighteen to twenty things. Yeah, and and I do that, I put more things that I probably couldn't get done in a day. So that way, if I at least hit 10, I did five more than what most people could do. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> and then I, it just kind of flips really, over to the next day, yeah. you know. Um, but no, there's no boredom. Um, I know I chose to be this way. And I think everything that my life has been leading up to this is why it's like that. And anyone that I know that's really successful in some capacity, they're the same way, whether it's an athlete. They got to train, you know, like you're not just like really good at basketball because you're just talented. There's talent, but then there's like the work ethic behind the talent. Mm -hmm. And that's how people are successful and happy in doing what they do. I don't care what it is. 
it all requires the same thing. It requires focus, dedication, hard work, discipline, you know, and you have to make a sacrifice. Yeah, I would love to just be chilling, you know, but I hate whenever I'm like hanging out with people. <laughs> you can't, you and know. It, it, people were like talking about like Game of Thrones or some show or something. I'm like, I've never watched an episode. I don't know what you're talking about. Every now and again, I get this. I like to call it like regular people envy. Well, they'll be like, oh my god, I just like binge watch, you know, this thing, and I'm like, how the hell do you have that much time? Like, that's amazing. I, I'm jealous, but it's cool. I don't want to do that either, you know. But yeah. I think it's what, you know, everyone has their outlets and everybody has their threshold of what they're willing to give to certain things, you know, so I can't judge them for not being busier. Um, but, you know, every now and again, you kind of wish you had some downtime to almost just reboot. But, you know, no rest for the wicked and sure. early bird gets the worm and, you know, like, yeah. I'm rolling on two hours right now, but I'm okay. <laughs> you know, every every once in a while, I like to like I go out with uh, I have some friends that really aren't into music, or whatever. Yeah. They're just I I don't want to call them regular people. I feel yeah. like that's a little yeah, derogatory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, they're just like they're just not necessarily creative types. Yeah. And I can like go out. It's like cool because if I go out with my music friends, all we're talking we're just bullshit yeah. about music. It's like I'm not really getting away from this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so as I try to do that every once in a while but it's I, like i'm about a half hour in and mm -hmm. then i'm like oh man I, I could be working on something exactly. I yeah the guilt relax. kicks in yeah. yeah like real fast yeah you know and i, and I know what, i know what you mean by like when i say regular things like it's not that they're regular because it's not music it's that there's a certain um maybe it's more the norm you know and so it, i i don't think it's normal to like get two hours of sleep in, oh yeah we're in, definitely not the normal people <laughs> in this situation it's yeah. not normal you know but I, I do remember telling my friend, I'm like, I'm never going to like not have something to do for the rest of my life. Like I, I'm always going to have something that needs to be done or something that needs to be tended to or something that needs to be reviewed or worked on or or honed in on. Flip side is balance. And the, the balance is really figuring out if you are going to have that downtime that it's very like useful to your spirit. You know, more than just like, okay, I got some sleep because I need to sleep. But like your soul needs to be reset to be able to do this stuff. To sure. be able to give, you know, like clearly, like I don't want to just run on fumes all the time because I don't think that's a good look either. I know what my threshold is. I can go for a while. Like <laughs> I got I got like a good four months of like full throttle and then it's like there's a crash. And then I have to like, all right, don't. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Time I'm, out. <laughs> every every <laughs> once know? in a while, I feel like I, I hit a, like a, a day or two where I'm like, you know what? I can't do like, anything. Like, you know, like, like saying, <laughs> you I know? told you I, I put out the podcast every Tuesday. Yeah. Every once in a while. There's like, I, I don't feel like editing this today. Yeah. It's going to come out on Wednesday or yeah. Thursday. It's mm -hmm. fine. And, and, and that's OK. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to have that accountability for yourself. You know, like you say, this is what I'm doing. This is what it is. And if it doesn't get done, there, I think it's good to have a little bit of that pressure on yourself saying, damn, why didn't I get that done? Did I not get it done because I was being lazy in that capacity? Or did I not get it done because I've done so much, I just couldn't? Like, mm -hmm. there's a difference, you know? And then I, I try to balance that. And I struggle with it because, you know, I, I want to try to do as much as I can while I'm here. Yeah. You know? I think it's a weird thing. It's like as long as I have it in me and I have the health and the focus and the drive and the energy and um, the passion, you know, that hasn't waned. If anything, it's become more intense the older I've become. I'm like, oh, my God. Once my kid was like older, I'm like, 
I could do stuff again. There's like this work. many hours in the day because yeah. I had them at uh, 18. So that was the priority. That was the number one thing. Um, I just raised him with me growing, you know, and it was one of those things where uh, the music, like, it was funny. He, he works with me too. He's my busser through the weekend. And I don't know what came on last night. And it was, a, he was like, so this is the original to the sample that had Biggie and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah. And then, like, someone played Primus or something. And he knew that. And it was, like, something off of Frizzle Fry. He's 24, you know? Yeah. And he just said, man, you guys don't understand all the stuff I would hear growing up. And like, we were talking about Jamiroquai. Because, you know, he's born in 91 and everything. I All the, when I was exploring, he pretty much got, like, yeah, he got thrown in the mix, and the other thing that happened too was if I couldn't get a sitter, I would just take him to the shows. So, <laughs> so he was like, well, he you know, no, it's funny. It was uh, <laughs> I was talking with somebody else recently, and they were talking about how uh, their dad had the philosophy that it was cheaper to just buy an extra ticket than hire a babysitter. Yeah, so he took him to a, a ton of shows, and, and you're sharing in the experience. I mean, if you're having a great time, and music's making you feel that and i'm so glad i did that because shows aren't what they used to be and i don't mean like back of my day you know but no but you're but they're right not. they're not they're not no, the same th th there's still great bands there's still killer concerts there's just no i think what it is is that there aren't any really really big rock bands yeah and that's the type of music that i primarily like so mm -hmm. now it's like the rock shows that i go to at most it's like stage eight right you know what i mean but when yeah. i was a kid like i saw a pantera at civic arena you know <laughs> like and that's a fucking show yeah smashing pumpkins at yeah. civic arena yeah you know yeah and i you know my show experience was in baltimore and dc like 86 through 91 yeah so it was like right on the cusp when a lot of weird things were good happening. shit was happening yeah like, like, i was born in 85 so yeah. well so you I figure a, like a good chunk of that for me <laughs> like seeing those big rock shows whether it be motley crew Aerosmith, like they put on a production. Like I, I, oh, I was very I would... used to that. You know, I was used to getting everything. And and I think uh, Game Changer was like one of my first real rock concerts I went to by myself. Or not by myself, but like was like okay, we're going to shows and mom's dropping us off type of thing. Was uh, Ozzy and Anthrax, and it was um, when Zach Wild sort of was like the next guy after Jakey Lee. I think was the last dude, and. Uh, I remember my face being melted and I was like, well, damn, like this is a rock show. But then the next one that I saw was Metallica and Justice for All with Queensryche. And that was like Fuck. the game changer. Was that like was Operation Mindcrime out at that time? Yeah. All right. And it was just like one that's like one of my favorite like concept <laughs> records of all time just just is. And I think it's because I saw it live before I even knew the whole thing. And they, they smashed, and then Metallica came out and just did the thing. And then it came back around. The tour came back around again, and it had the cult. So it was like... Well, that's weird. That's a weird mix. It was a weird mix, <laughs> but somehow it kind of worked, because they had that song, what was it, Fire or something yeah. like that? It was real big at the time. you know. Um, and being able to see the evolution of not just concerts, but like watching rock music change, you know, and uh, being like at a, a Death Angel and Forbidden show, you know, and then seeing like Corner in in DC and seeing Bad Brains, or it, it'd be like HR, but it'd be all the skinheads and like all the Bad Brain people at a, like a reggae show because he was doing the reggae stuff too, and just 
Like kind of being on the cusp of what was considered alternative way before it was because like Susie and the Banshees and uh, even like Sugar Cubes, that stuff was, that was like the true alternative. You know, The Cure, all those groups were what were at the time, you know, when 120 minutes were around. Was yeah. Around. I, like that was like considered <laughs> alternative. Then you had Headbangers Ball. That was the thing. Is like, else, I remember know? as a kid, like I would always like have to sit through the last half hour of 120 minutes waiting for Headbangers Ball uh-huh. to come on. And over time, yeah. I like started to like some of that yeah, stuff as it was a kid. Music, you know? Yeah, that's where Deftones make so much sense. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I feel like that's what Deftones came out of. Yeah, was the half hour when you're waiting for Headbangers Ball to come on. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but being able to see those things like, up close and personal like that, and being in pits before like the groups were like the icons. You know, like, like Pantera. I get I got to see them open for Suicidal in Exodus, and I was like. This, this group's I don't this is something's different in my life <laughs> you uh-huh. know like seeing Slayer on uh Seasons in the Abyss at 16 and seeing like people being carried out just covered in blood like really <laughs> violent old school like spin circle mosh pits old school stuff you know and for me too at that in that time or at that time it was risky being up in some of those shows you know what I mean like yeah. in Baltimore man like there were like three black people there. One of them was security. And like the other one was my best friend. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was a little hairy, you know? But because we were we were at almost every show. So we just became like the guys who were like, oh, well, duh, they're all they're gonna be at every show because that's what these dudes really are. Yeah. You know, so there was sort of this like badge of honor proving that you were real but i'm like i'm not proving shit like i'll be right in the middle of that pit because this is my shit yeah i'm not you know I, it's I mean? like i'm not i'm here for me i'm not yeah. here for you yeah it, it like crossed a lot of barriers but i'm glad i got to see that because it's never been the same ever again uh, no since way that era you know what i mean and um i just remember i guess like one of the huge impactful things was seeing pantera um at this place called hammerjacks and they play it, uh, vulgar display of power wasn't out yet and they played the whole record. They're like, we got this new record coming out. And it was just like, okay, how did they go from Cowboys to that? Like, what happened in the last year and a half of, you know? And that's that's the stuff I was raised on, you know, from the grimy, like, pit shows all the way up to the really big, like, it was like, what, Motley Crue and freaking, like, I love Warrant seeing, like, the, the, old, <laughs> the old Pantera shit. Yeah. When, like, they had, like, the... Oh, way before, yeah. yeah. like, Power Metal, I think, was the name of the album. Yeah, I mean, that's a transition, you know, because they grew up on the stuff that had that. I mean, when people try to, like, mock where someone came from, I'm like, well, I mean, if you like Van Halen, you can't hate on anything. If you listen to Dime, you hear Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen. You will hear those two influences more than anything, you know. But he had that Texas swag that nobody could touch. He had that, like, Steve Ray Vaughan, like, snarl in yeah. his playing that it always made him stand out more you know what i mean I just, i'm like this is my favorite guitar player <laughs> like, this, this <laughs> my, he's like I, I, and it's always been like that you know but i i'm grateful for being able to see those things because as i especially once i started to have free access to concerts i mean i was going to four concerts a week and, and it would they were all over the place it, it really has changed you know and and it seemed like there was an era where giving the audience everything they deserved wasn't an option. It wasn't like important to bands on a national level. And I was, I was like, do you think like huge. grunge reset that in a way? I do because I think uh, what it was was like grunge needed to happen because we needed we were like stuck in this weird like coming out of like the end of uh, 
because people forget that like when they make fun of hair metal and like glam stuff, I was like, they were dominating MTV. Oh it, yeah. It wasn't like, oh, there was this phase. No, dude, poison was dominating. Like they were in heavy rotation every day. You know what I mean? And like, so there was this sort of weird transition. But it was a social transition too, you know, because you know, that was coming out of the crack era. And it, you know, people weren't singing about they were singing about partying sex drugs and rock and roll but they weren't necessarily like oh i blew a line <laughs> you know then grunge comes along and like people were singing about being doped up and like and, and not that that whole thing was based off it, of that it, it kind of romanticized that it lifestyle. did i mean yeah. you think you think about allison chains i'm a huge chains fan yeah they were they were one of the first bands that kind of started singing about it again since maybe like lou reed or some other acts were like kind of doing that sure and, and the, all that stuff was like a huge influence you know yeah. what i mean especially if you like Kurt Cobain, like how many fucking Velvet Underground covers, exactly. like B sides and shit, are there that Nirvana did? I think what they did as as a movement, because it, it kind of wasn't as long of a movement as people think it was, but I all think, the pioneers died off too yeah, fucking quick. You know, like it, it came and went real. It was really that's aggressive, why. Yeah, you know, um, they made it so that it felt you didn't feel separate as a fan. You know, and that's why I think like their music one had like the normal impact. person could do this. Yeah, like Kurt Cobain was like the dude who you you felt like you are. Everybody had a Kurt Cobain in their high school. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a, and 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 when you saw him on that grand scale, you're like he's still like wearing a shitty sweater and playing this you know Jaguar guitar and kind of thrashing around and kind of isn't giving a fuck, but don't, totally gives a fuck. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. And I think that was that spoke to a lot of people who maybe didn't have a voice or didn't know how to express themselves and, and could connect to those sort of like, you know, I don't want to say depressing, but like introspective, like lyrics about feeling a certain way, you know, uh -huh. because people weren't writing about that. You either had like full on thrash is like singing against the government or singing about, you know, and reality, you know or like I mean? some like <laughs> science fiction you know? shit. Yeah. yeah. And Metallica's black album is the only thing to step out of that in the weird transition when the gap was sort of closing. They're the only group that like was able to kind of make that jump. Maybe them and Bon Jovi, like as far as still being relevant, like 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> later, there were a lot of, I mean, the, I'm real, I, I the love, gate closed on a lot of I people. Love, <laughs> I love that decision you know? to, because was the Black Album was the album where Lars, Lars played single kick, right? Mm -hmm. I think he there was no double nope. kick on that album. Yeah. And I think like that alone just significantly changed yeah. the yeah. sound of that band. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think what was nice about it is that you still had Metallica sort of leading the way for, like, there was a lot of uh, discomfort in the fact that they went so minimal coming off of like the you know the injustice for all but that for a lot of people especially like metal purists were kind of like ah, i sold out i'm like uh every time people would say that i would get so frustrated because they have to understand from an artist's perspective by the time especially then maybe not so much now but by the time we heard that record it was like two years old yeah to them you know what i mean so their development was based off of okay we toured for three years we're coming off the road. We're going to try to be normal again a little bit. And then we got to go right back and start writing a record and work on it. And then it gets released. And you know, it's you know? hard to say that they sold out because it sold out to what? That album still sounds like it's there's not, nobody else had put out anything that sounded like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was they just, just they just took the next step. It was just people being purist. And yeah. not let. that's when people don't want you to grow, you know, or also what happens with like rock and a lot of things. It's like you feel like you're losing your group. 
because everybody likes them now. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a yeah. like a personal attachment. To I like, remember the first time that happened know? to me was with corn. Yeah. When corn got big, yeah, I was, I was like, like, "What the fuck?" Like, I remember you uh, weren't at that three eleven show where they opened <laughs> up and killed him. Yeah. <laughs> you know like, I, mean? I was like in seventh grade in study hall, and I remember hearing some kid talk about corn. I was like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, like yeah. I've been listening to this shit since I was in fucking exactly. like third grade. And I think that's I think that's a natural progression. I th- I just think with grunge, they allowed it. They allowed some of the punk sensibility to come into playing that had been lost in like the showy aspect of rock music and being like kind of big and overproduced and you know um kind of overblown and the solos like they kind of took solos away i was totally fine with that but what was good about it is that it took it back to the song mm-hmm. you know it, it was all about the song so um as as I, i'm not a metal guitarist but i grew up as a metal guitarist in my sensibility in my thinking and as a metal guitarist you think about your part. You think about your guitar. You think about your riff. That's what I was talking about you know earlier. I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. But when you start thinking about the song, it's like, well, I don't really need to play anything right here except for this chord because it needs to. There's, there's a the song singing goes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's what it brought to the table for the average rock listener. Like I know that. You know? Like it's crazy to think about how short of a span nirvana was on a big scale that was like three and a half years maybe and that's like nothing yeah but so much happened Mm -hmm. in that time you know yeah and it's just interesting because they were they all did get really big and and i think what happens is too it was a weird there's a weird connection between grunge and metal that kind of crosses over because alice in chains being on the uh what was it new titans on the block tour was only because there was a mistake because Death Angel had a, uh, a a bus crash. They were supposed to be the fourth band. So it was like Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, Death Angel. Death Angel's bus wrecked. They are all balled up. Allison Chains had Man in the Box. They got put on that tour. I really think that was the turning point more than what people think. Like, they think it's Nirvana. I was like, no, it started before that. It started before... Nirvana really hit with that record. It was within the same time frame, but it wasn't the first thing. It's just I remember when they got played on Headbangers Ball, and I was like, something's different. Something's about to change, you know. But really, that summer, Chains had toured with all the the heavy heavy groups. They were like the heaviest groups of the time. The only person missing was freaking Metallica. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it was or Testament or something. You know what I mean. But I think that's what opened it up. So that's why Chains is still held in that kind of higher, not high regard, but they kind of have this different realm that they float in. And I think it's because they really got their first heavy exposure through heavier music. And then when Nirvana came, I mean, it was a wrap. Like, <laughs> like, you know, but Soundgarden was already there. Soundgarden was already in your kind of alternative ear. One, t- I mean, if you listen to the first. From what I understand, ones, they had know. like a, a really heavy underground following before they blew up, yeah. right? Yeah. Like yeah, they, would, are, they were already like supported and had their thing going on. It was just, it wasn't on such a national scale where it changed how society was with music. Yeah. Do you and know that's what, what I mean? Nirvana did. Yeah, that's what Nirvana did. And just and then Pearl Jam came after that and it was a rap. <laughs> it was a rap. <laughs> like, it really was. It was crazy to watch. I was like, man, they just took over everything. Yeah. You know? And, and it was still in the era when selling records was like a thing. You know, like by was it down on the upside, Soundgarden, they sold like, I don't know, two million copies and it was like considered a failure because they sold like ten million or something else, uh-huh. you know? I'm like, 
two million is a failure. Dang, that's some pressure. You know yeah. what I mean? But it's also like the era before the internet came. You know, so your rock stars and your musicians still had a mystique about them. Yeah. You know, which is very interesting about like the impact of Prince passing away. You know, but before, I mean, you think about it, Instagram and Facebook and all the all the social media thing. It kind of brings your stars off of the pedestal and it, it helps because it makes them more real but man it, it hurts in a lot of you ways remember too. when like they weren't so real and it was like oh my god i wonder what bjork sounds like to talk yeah <laughs> like you look the mystery is gone yeah you'll never be able to repeat that because sometimes technologies advancements and sometimes I, mean? I hate that because like there's a lot of artists that i like that aren't necessarily the coolest people and yeah. it's like i don't really want to know this yeah yeah, because it makes it hard don't, for me to enjoy the music yeah, once I know you're it. a dick. Don't ruin it for me, please. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that's gone, and and I love like looking at that Bjork cover right now, and thinking about like when that was out, you didn't know anything past what you knew, what you read in the magazine, you know. And then you had to like you built your story based off of what they gave you. Like it was kind of controlled because it was record labels and stuff, but that was part of the mystique. Like you could build a career based off of what you gave the public. Uh -huh. And and it's almost like less was more because you're like, God, I want to, I can't wait to see her alive. And that's how you sell those tickets. And out. now it's like more is not enough. Yeah. I'm Nothing's like, ever enough. Like Snoop Dogg has like five posts <laughs> in like 20 minutes. And that, you know, like it's to the point where like Rihanna posts something and it gets like 47,000 likes. Like what? <laughs> you know? So, uh -huh. It's good. I like where things have gone, but also I think I just miss some of that. You know, it, it takes me all the way back to the orange juice on the the P Funk record, the mystique of looking at this crazy looking dude coming out of the spaceship in like silver underwear with these weird boots or whatever the hell was going on. Like, what? You know? And I, there's been all this talk about Prince lately, and it's such a generation thing too because he's been around for so long. Some people just don't get it. And, and, and I don't expect them to, and I don't fault them for it. I was like telling my son, I'm like, Tommy, you got to understand, this dude had songs called like Head and like Soft and Wet. Like this is right before Tipper Gore really made it mandatory that there were uh, the parental advisory stickers. And what pushed it over the edge was NWA. But Prince was doing that in like an yeah, era wasn't when he nobody on, was singing about it. There was like, like what, like the, some like, like, I don't, it wasn't Dirty Dozen or some sort of like list of songs that they were trying to get yeah. censored and wasn't uh -huh. like Dirty Diana one of them, I think. Um, I think of maybe Darling Nikki. Oh, yeah. Because well, yeah, yeah. it was like it had masturbation in it. Okay. Yeah. I can't, stuff. I couldn't remember. It was like some, one of those. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's because things were, you know, we're coming out of that Reagan era and, you know, you, you, you had like clean cut Whitney Houston stuff and then you had Motley Crue on the other end of the spectrum and then you had all these different things going on. But, to think about these artists taking risk and 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 doing things that they felt and going against the grain and, and still selling records to do it. like, Do you think it's still possible to take a risk as an artist? Yeah, but I, I think the risk is like you have to know that you're taking the risk. You know, you, you have to know that you're stepping out of your comfort zone. I mean, like as far as like creative stuff goes, not necessarily like from a business aspect, but like taking a risk yeah, content wise. I, I think if you... You know, if you're a singer-songwriter and you're used to doing that style and you've only done that style, you have to make a decision on whether or not you're going to do something outside of the box that's comfortable. If you're a metal guy and, and you're doing this type of thing, you know, 
what can you do to enhance your stuff? And it might be doing something completely that you're not even good at, you know what I mean, to take the risk. So I think artistically, yeah, it's always going to be there. Um, Career-wise, it's just a little more different. You know, you figure, how do you follow Thriller with Bad? Like, Bad's a good record, but it's not Thriller. How do you follow Purple Rain with, you know, like, you, they had to change. They had to, like, change everything, you know? Because what are you going to do, put out the next, the same record? Yeah. You know what I mean? Think about Metallica. Like, we were talking about Metallica. That was a huge risk, you know? And then they just kept taking risks, even if they, even if it failed, you know? Well, they and, could afford to fail. Yeah. Well, once you get to the point, you can, <laughs> when you can afford to fail, it's a little different, you know yeah. what I mean? But I do think it's important as an artist to um, challenge yourself to be better. And that may not be by doing the same thing that you're already good at. Sure. You know, so I think it's possible, you know, but, and, and I, I think it's the only way to do art. Is that kind of like what, where, what landed you with what you're doing now with like the, the your plan. solo stuff and plan B and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so I, I was in a band called Formula 412 for eight years and we did a lot of cool things and got really popular and I, I'll never, I can never say anything bad about that experience because of what it made me, you know, and what I learned from it. Um, but then there were certain elements of it where I was creatively feeling like maybe some of the things that I was writing on my own or outside of it weren't necessarily either ready to be working to the band or didn't fit into what it was, or maybe others weren't ready for where it could, where I could see it could go, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was really good at playing like riffs, singular riffs, like give me a 4-4 hip hop beat that's banging. I can lock it down, do exactly what I got to do, you know. But after a while, I, I, I had these other chord progressions or these other sounds I wanted to try. And based off of how we were doing our thing, I, I wasn't always able to exercise it, you know. Which was fine. It didn't have to always be in that capacity, but that was the main thing that I was doing. So I was starting to feel stifled. You know, and it's like I didn't want to just like cut demos at home. It was like, sure, I want my guitar playing to get better. You know, I don't want to just play this like riffy thing. You know, like what if I did more of a Radiohead style, like expansive riff and we like make that a dope track? Like, how do we do it? I don't have the answer, but let's try, you know. And um, I think with the plan B thing, it really was a sort of happy accident because uh, Evan Thorson, you know, you know him well. I know, I know, I know Evan. <laughs> you know. He was just coming over to my house as a, a, a music buddy, guitar friend, and it was like, hey, I, I mean, he knew I played, I knew he played, and we didn't even really talk about music that much for a while because we worked together, and then we just sort of nerded out about it. And I'm like, if you ever want to come over and just play, let's just see what happens. We weren't trying to form a band. We weren't even trying to put anything out. It was simply to have like a couple hours a week where we just sit and see what happens, and that turned into like, three years and then we started stockpiling then it's like i got logic and then he got logic and we both started learning how to record better and you know got deeper into the guitars and we would have acoustic sessions and all these different things and we were sort of always playing things that weren't what we were doing on our main yeah our, our main projects because i felt that one it was naturally happening i said it's so funny the two guys who like love metal we keep playing all this like soft pretty acoustic <laughs> stuff you know what i mean but yeah. that was naturally happening and it was because we were challenging ourselves you know for him he's such a talented guitar player but coming from like a metal background I'm like 
hey man you're playing too much and you know <laughs> i was like play less and he would be looking at me like less than that i'm like yeah like you know and and then he would be like oh well this is how i'm approaching i'm like i have no idea how you just pick that out so we were always sort of pushing each other to be better at what we were already doing but also to be better outside of it and kind of exploring you know yeah um so the plan b thing was simply what it was demos that i had when i was just kind of writing riffs and didn't have a band like i was in between bands and it was just like plan b because my buddy bill would play drums on it and bill and byron that's all it was gotcha you know it was just sort of like so i would memorize like where the stuff was you know and locate files um and then someone asked if we would play a show and we just kind of put this group together with no name you know and we just kind of had we picked some of the old demo things that we've been working on and the made them into a yeah. set and played this crappy set because we were like terrified because we'd never played the music live you know and um People were like that was great you know what, what do you call it and i was like oh we don't have a name and then it sort of turned into uh well when when you want to play a show you know james street and i was like Pfft. and we just kind of ran with it and just like, <laughs> I, mean, I mean we still didn't truly have a name and the only reason it's called byron ash and plan b is because i already have my website established i have like uh sort of a production thing where i do like production for videos and stuff all of that's like legitimately started already the business cards are underway. Like, you know, that that's I worked on that stuff before this even happened. So it was sort of like, well, profile wise, I know a lot of people. I, I bartend. Yeah, you have to it's like branding. Yeah, I was just kind of branding myself while I was still in the other group, you know? Yeah. And uh and not even knowing where I was gonna take it. I I just knew I had to do something. Yeah. You know, and, and I needed to do more and, yeah, and we, it sort of turned into its own thing in a very short amount of time. I mean, the band's not even a year old and we're, you know, things are happening kind of fast in a way where it's like, all right, let's, it, you can only plan so much because you don't want to always be reactive. But at the same time, it's nice to be able to be reactive when your website's already done. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? When you, you, you have like a little bit of a, a social profile that's out there. So people, yeah, know. people know who you are. Yeah, so you know, it, so it makes just, it, that's kind of why if we you would have like, it created a whole new band name it would have been like you know then who's you gotta that really push like that name yeah. and that thing and so i'm just it was his idea to he's like byron nash and plan b because first we were like plan b and then someone's like isn't that like some day after pregnancy thing <laughs> i was like oh god i wouldn't even know that but i guess you're right so that's why we tagged that on the front yeah and then it was like we sort of got too many gigs not too many gigs but we got enough gigs that that's it. It, almost, that has to it be would it. almost hurt to change the name now, yeah, you know. So we're just fine. running with it, you know. And it is what it is. So that's sort of how it all came about. It really just came purely from the passion of loving to play music. Definitely. You know, and, and, and there was a genuine friendship built out of like sitting there like for three, four hours. I don't have a lot of people I can sit for three to like six hours and be focused and take like one break, you know. And so when you find that, it's like a real special thing. And we just stay on it. You know, I mean, to the point, our our threshold or our like limit where we know that we had a good day is where we're like so stupid by the end of it because we've been challenged and we've given everything creatively. I'm like, man, your I, brain's just mush. Yeah, I was like, I can't even like cook eggs right now. Like, I'm <laughs> done, dude. So that means we had a good day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's opened it up for everything else that we're doing. I think it translated back to everyone's bands. I think everyone's just got better as a musician. And now the guys that we're playing with, they're all like session oriented guys they play in like church and jazz groups and 
do gigs all over the like they're requested you know and the fact that they like regularly want to play with us and they can kind of they have an understanding of the vision and they i think they believe in what work i'll put into the promotion and ticket sales like we do pre-show or pre uh sell tickets yeah which a lot of local bands don't do unless they're opening for a national you know or if it's like uh maybe a release party or something like that we've and this came from me being in formula 412 we always thought if you sell tickets in advance one it puts a value to it it's kind of like if someone gave me the same cd for free as and then the other guy says i'm going to give you that same thing it's two bucks i'll probably listen to the one that i paid for more than i would the free one i don't know why that is i think it's because i have that tactile value to like records and cds and stuff and i always felt like if people see you selling tickets and and, and kind of get used to you hustling and pushing this event then they know it's something that you believe in they, they tend to believe in it a little bit more and also from the promoter's perspective they see you working trying to get people in the door it's just going to lead to more gigs and more opportunity and i think as you're trying to brand yourself as an artist you also also should be branding yourself as a group that works you mm -hmm. know because that's kind of what the backbone of it is you're like yeah it's great if we sound awesome but it sucks if there's 12 people there yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so i want to pack a room you know and i'll use my bartender profile my social profile i'll use all that stuff to do it um we, we just opened for living color and sold 74 tickets and we only had 13 days to do it and it was at 24 bucks a pop you know so the hustle was real <laughs> you know but i think people see that and then they respect it and then they want to support it and it's just even though it's social media based and all of that stuff i'm still stapling flyers up and taking a couple hours and hitting record stores like old school style and i think I, I still really firmly believe in the grassroots approach. You know, you could post it's the best on, approach. You could post something on Facebook all day, you know, but that doesn't it, it truly doesn't get people to the show. It's all it is is a reminder because we're in the era where people are going. No one even knows their friend's phone number. You know what I mean? And, and you pass over things and the information's coming in so so quickly that a band has to really understand that cats don't really need to go see you. Like they could literally be distracted by someone saying, you want to get a beer? I mean, I've actually made it, not made it to a show because my cat sat on my lap and I fell asleep, you know? So, and I'm <laughs> someone who's like a super supporter. So if I could fall off that way, then that really lets me know that you have to work very hard to let people know that they're going to get a good time, you know, give them what they deserve. They spend mm -hmm. $5, $10, give them everything you yeah. got. It also you know? helps to actually go out of your way and invite people. Yes. Like, shoot somebody a message you say hey like you should come to this show yeah because you actually invited them yeah it's it seems more personal than like sending somebody it. a fucking event on facebook that's not or hot. Just, yeah no no well if you do send an event that's got to be one percentage of what you're doing yeah it's got to be a part of it's it good well. to be there to be like okay this is there so the people coming to the show can yeah. see where the address is and see what time yeah. it starts that's and just, shit like they're that. just crossing another thing off yeah. the list with that but that cannot be your main i believe that can't be your main way and if anyone is making it work i would love to know some secrets or something <laughs> i would i would gladly take some tips but i don't think that's it because i think the only way that works is with like the younger can't get their face away from the phone generation yeah mm -hmm. you know it's like the stuff that you're doing you're marketing to an older demographic yeah. that aren't on facebook 24 7 exactly. so you need to be in their fucking face yeah and it's funny because even when it wasn't so like social media driven my flyer game was real aggressive, and I remember like <laughs> it was it was real aggressive, and uh, I remember 
I was passing out flyers, and someone's like, yeah, man, you know, I'm at a show. And I gave them the flyer, and they were like, yeah, so when are you playing next? And I was like, I just gave you the flyer. You know, so even on, on that level, you still have to keep people engaged, and you still have to make sure, like, simple things. You know, if you ever look at certain flyers, and I come from, like, the school of, like, really crazy-looking metal flyers. And you're like, oh, my God, the graphics and the name look so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, but if I were walking by, could I read that? You know, because it should be as dumb simple as possible. Not necessarily simple as in poorly done. Simple as in what, who, what, where, when, why. Yeah. That's it. And you should be able to catch all of that in a glimpse. So I used to, like, hang flyers. I wouldn't hang them, like, high on poles. I would hang them low at so... If you were in a car and you were at a stop sign, you would look over and the flyer is right at eye level, right? And all the other flyers would be much higher. And I was like riding around on a mountain bike, just stapling up, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I put them in these weird places and I, w- I made them the most obnoxious, like fluorescent pink. There It'd you go. Pink and black. It, and everything else would be black and white. And this pink and black would just jump out, you know, sporadic, super bold, like, you know? Boom, 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 boom. And then for one show, I, I would do a photo shoot and I would use, I would do three designs for the same show. Or I would like do the same design, but I would switch the photo. So you just kept seeing what we look like. So even if what ended up happening over two years, even if no one saw us, they'd be like, I, I swear I've heard of you before. And I was like, <laughs> it's working, you know? <laughs> you know, they're like, you look so familiar. And it's like, yeah, because you probably saw like 90 photos of my ass over <laughs> You know, so I, I still believe in that. I think you just have to really drive it home. And then if you're fortunate enough to get them to the show, you got you to gotta go in. Make connections. Talk you gotta to give, them. You got to yeah. give them what they, they came for. And then you talk to them. And then it's it, it's good from there. And then they tell someone. And then it grows. And it and it's not going to be super fast. Like, oh, I have a 1,000 followers. Like, that, a lot yeah, of that's not even real. No. You know what I mean? Like, likes and follows are they're great because what they generate with algorithms – but they're not always real, you know? And so I think you still need to go out and touch the oh, people. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I will, like, be like, I'll put out a song, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, it'll be, like, 80-something likes. And then I check the song plays the next day. It's, like, 24 plays. Yeah. And it's, like, okay, mm-hmm. it's cool that there's people that like that I'm doing stuff. Yes. But it's, like, engage. Yeah. Otherwise, can I, I could just put up four minutes of silence every other week. Yeah. Save yeah. myself a lot of hassle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might as well just do that. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're not going to listen to it, what the hell's the point? Yeah. So I, I think all of it's important. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, every every aspect of promotion and marketing and hustling is there. But at the end of the day, it's about the music. You know, if you love the music, chances are people are going to love what you're doing. It's going to reflect, you know, because all the music that you have in these records in this room and that I love, there's something caught on. A lot of it's probably older, too. It's like there's a lot of things that are caught on tape. You know, there are a lot of moments captured, you know, and it's weird with this whole digital era. Like, it's very easy to suck all the emotion out of it because you can make it sound so perfect. But I just think if you get if you're putting true, honest feeling into it, no matter what your genre and style is, somebody's going to connect to it. And then it's up to you to get it to them. Yeah. You know, like it, whatever capacity that's going to take, you know. So, so what is the future hold for Byron Nash and Plan B or whatever else you're getting into? I'm, what's I'm, the what's the hustle plan? I'm, keep, I'm, I'm keeping it simple. Uh, we have a show. We're playing like, so we did all these shows where we had sell tickets, and I'm like, I wanted to line up some gigs. We were just playing, 
you know, and take kind of take that pressure off, you know. So we're playing Mad Max Robinson on Cinco de Mayo, but what? it's like a, it's an outdoor event. They throw this what? big party. When's that? May fifth, Cinco de Mayo, right? Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and it's and that's the first restaurant I ever worked at, so I have like a connection to that. Ah, cool. Um, and then we're doing Kaya Fest where we kind of got our show start, and that's an outdoor block party. It's free uh, on Sunday, May 29th. And then we got on the Deutschtown Music Festival. So those are three things that kind of line up where we can just go, show up, and play. Cool, yeah. Um, and then we're going to go in, and we recorded some stuff after our first show before, and we're playing it so well now that we just feel like... You want to redo it? We, we actually, yeah, I just don't want to put it out not sounding like what we sound like now. Sure. We just hit... You know that that corner you turn as a band where you kind of look around the room and you're like, yeah, we just fucked that up. That sounds awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we just hit that stride. So I'm like, we can knock this out real fast now. You know, like before it was sort of like I didn't even know the keyboard player's last name yet. You know, like we didn't know each other that mm-hmm. well. And it was like we didn't know the material as well. So while we were good at playing, you couldn't it, the feeling wasn't there yeah. sounds good and it like, sounds great it just doesn't have like the heart behind it now is so much more powerful mm-hmm. and i want to capture that oh, so yeah. we're just going to go right in and knock out some music and try to get it released by the fall and definitely yeah, you know that's, that's why that's the immediate goal awesome know, short-term goal that's what's up yeah man well we're gonna probably wrap this yeah, up yeah th- dude thanks dude, for having me i appreciate it i feel it. like i could probably sit here and talk oh, to yeah, you for like another three hours it's oh a goddamn problem <laughs> 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 yeah <laughs> No, that, that that's great. Thank you for your time. Thanks for all of this stuff and uh you know, anything I can do to help push this, you know. Word. I'll yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, man. Same hey, here. And that's about it. So right. and we will stop this right now. And that is all, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Byron is an overwhelmingly awesome positive human force i'm you know i feel honored to know the dude and i really hope that if you didn't know byron beforehand or even if you did know him prior to this that you really enjoyed the conversation i thought it was a good one exceptional again byron nash and plan b are going to be playing at kaya fest sunday May 29th from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. It's fucking free. (laughs) And yeah, you can find out more about that. Just go to ByronNash.com. I'm going to have some links in the description. So check them out. Support Byron. Support local music. Support positivity. That's what I'm going to leave this episode on. Support positivity. And if you know me at all, That probably sounds fucking ridiculous coming out of my mouth, but I'm in a good mood. I'm in high spirits, and I feel like I need to share that with all of you. So I'll be back again next week with another episode. Same time, same place, same channel. You know the drill. My name is Sykes. Start the beat. 2016. Woo! Woo! Thanks for listening.